Thank you, Matthew. And first of all, let me thank you very, very much for having me here as a visiting fellow for this term. It's always an extraordinary pleasure to be back in Oxford and at St. Anthony's. And uh, yes, I appreciate the opportunity. And thank you all for coming to listen to what I have to say. When I first came, I first came to St. Anthony's 35 years ago. And not exactly by the week, because I arrived on the 4th of October, which is 11 days ago. But anyway, 35 years ago, I was arriving here. And 50 months later, I had completed my PhD dissertation. I was very proud of it. It was the standard 100,000 words <coughs> dissertation. <coughs> and then I came across a detail that was very puzzling for me. In order to submit a dissertation, I had to provide a 300-word abstract. And I thought, how can I say 50 months, four, four years and two months of my life in 300 words? It's, it's more or less one word for each five days. <laughs> how can you compress? How can you compress uh, four years of your life in 300 words? Well, I have to compress a full book now into about 45 minutes to an hour. And that's the same, the same feeling. It's a bit awkward, but let me try to do my best. <coughs> okay. You all know that back in 1999, Timor-Leste holds a referendum. The referendum came up with a very clear decision. The Timorese wanted to be independent. They did not want to pursue with the annexation, the integration into the Republic of Indonesia as its 27th province. After the referendum, a new opportunity was open for the Timorese, and it had a double, it was a double process. They had to create a new and democratic state. So it was a combination of state building, they had to create their own state, their own institutions, and democracy building, the institutions should be democratic. This was both a choice of Timorese leaders and very much an imposition of the international community who came to rescue Timor. So there is this external element which is very powerful in this process. Well, not all good things go always together. It is very nice to proclaim that state building and democracy building need not be a contradiction, but they need not be always in the same wavelength. There are conflicting priorities, uh, there are clashes. Well, these two things need to be taken and analyzed separately, although I will be concentrating mostly on the, on the democratic process rather than on state building. In 2002, Timor had got 
enough work done, and we'll come back to this, to proclaim independence. On the 20th of May 2002, Timor-Leste proclaimed, or as they like to say, they restored independence. Independence had been unilaterally proclaimed on the 20th November 1975, only to succumb on the 7th of December to the Indonesian invasion, and it had received absolutely no international support at the time. Now we are in 2014. 12 years have elapsed. What is the picture? How successful has been the democratic process? Well, to cut a long story short, let me give you what the indices published by international reputable organizations say. Freedom House last report rates Timor as an electoral democracy and as a partly free country, rating 3.5 points in their scale, in which only those who have less than 2.5 points are completely free, those between 2.5 and, and 5 points are partly free. In terms of political rights, Timor-Leste rates 3, in civic liberties it rates 4, although from 2002 to 2006 it has rated 3, it was, it was better. The funny thing about this item, or this index, is that the reason why Timor-Leste went from 3 to 4 in civic liberties is articulated with problems of the civil code, the problems of the freedom of expression under the civil code. And I say it's, it's odd because what Timor did was follow the Portuguese lead. Port Timor-Leste adopted the Portuguese standards in this case, and Freedom House lowered the rating of Timor for this reason. Well, Portugal in, Timor, in Freedom House's rating has got one, the top. So it's kind of weird how to justify this. So, in terms of Freedom House ratings, Timor-Leste is electoral democracy and partly free. It is a decent rating. Polity 4, another international organization who rates democracy, Timor-Leste scores 7. Nations scoring 6 to 9 are democracies. Uh, countries scoring 10 or more than nine at least, are full democracies. Timor-Leste is a democracy without qualification. Finally, the Economist Intelligence Unit's Democracy Index for 2013, Timor-Leste scores 7.24. This comes in the range of six to, to eight points, which is the rating for what they called flawed democracies. So, Timor-Leste is a flawed democracy, although its 
in this index the best nation in Southeastern Asia and compares with other flawed democracies like France or Italy. In order to have an idea what flawed democracy means in terms of the economist intelligence unit, you have to know that France and Italy are also flawed democracies. So it is a very stringent, very, very stringent criterion in order to get the, the, the more than eight points which it takes uh, in this rating to be a full democracy. On top of that, I could ask, I could add here a huge list of academics who wrote on Timor-Leste. Dennis Shoesmith, Damien Kingsbury, Michael Leach, Andrea Molnar, or in Portugal, Armand Marques Guedes, or Pedro Baslado Vasconcelos, and everybody converges to say that Timor-Leste is a democracy. So, the conclusion is, Timor-Leste, after 12 years, is a stable democracy, but it still requires some tests to qualify as a consolidated democracy. There are some tests the literature proposes to qualify as consolidated. And, of course, as these indices show, there is a lot of room for improvement. But then, again, the question of the quality of democracy is uh, different from the question of knowing whether it is a democracy or not. A democracy can be of better quality or less good quality and still be a democracy. So my talk today is, how did we get here? What is it, was it possible to have done better? What lays ahead? My first point is assessing the odds. Could Timor-Leste become a democracy in the first place? Could it become a democracy? And my, my starting point comes from Albert Ho Hirschman, who says that the quest for preconditions, which entail a strong causality model and focuses attention on potentially positive elements alone, might well turn into an endless spiral search for ever more numerous prerequisites, ending up by showing that the emergence of democracy would paradoxically be impossible. So, instead of looking for prerequisites, I want to look at the broad landscape of both favorable and adverse elements. Because Martin Lipset said, once having a reason for whatever unique historical reason, a political form or a democracy, may persist under conditions which normally adverse to the emergence of that form. Once it is established, for instance, by an external intervention, it may persist even if the preconditions did not materialize in the sense of a model. So what I want to stress is agency, the will to embrace democracy, acknowledging structure, the combination of enabling and disabling factors. And for this purpose, I thought of using a device which is often employed in business studies, which is SWOT analysis. 
I'm not sure whether you are familiar with SWOT analysis, but SWOT analysis looks at a problem. For instance, in business, you want to launch a new product in the market and you look for positive and negative factors, both internal and external. Internally, a positive factor is a strength, a negative factor is a threat. Externally, a positive factor is an opportunity. No, sorry. Uh, strength, weakness, and the externally, opportunity and threats. So, I analyzed about 30 elements and which could pertain uh, to this uh, question, from the size of the country to the kind of leadership, international intervention, alternative narratives uh, to democracy. I picture out in this fourth frame uh, scenario, the SWOT analysis. I can take you in detail into my SWOT analysis, but let me just say that I concluded that there were four critical elements to be taken into account. First is time. You need an adequate time frame. Rustow suggested that a democratic process takes at least one generation. Schmitter and Santizo say that it takes at least three legislatures. We're talking about 15 years in one case, 25 years in another case. So uh, I'm looking at the first 12 years. So I'm well within the time, the time frame. And also for those people who are designing the democratic process, they had to take into consideration that democratic process does not bloom uh, one early morning, but it takes time. Obviously, this also means that the priorities have to be very carefully chosen within this time frame. The second element is ownership. And ownership is important mainly in a situation where the international presence was so, so powerful as it was in Timor. This means transferring from external inputs to the mobilization of local social forces. You need to mobilize internal forces rather than use external inputs, which implied things like not keeping foreign benign actors in town for too long and getting away from an offer-based attitude rather than a demand-based agenda. For those of us like Andrew who have been in Timor, we are all aware of the extreme impact of what donors want to give They want to give goods, they want to give advice, they want to give a number of things. But the question is, what do the Timorese want? Ownership of the process is what really matters. Give, let me give you an example. In terms of health, 
it is okay if you uh, are offering medical advice on eye care, but it, it would be perhaps dislocated to offer a very sophisticated uh, machinery, which then wouldn't have any people to operate with. And sometimes what you get is this offer-based uh, agenda. I once, in the easternmost part of Timor, uh, where I have been carrying field work with my wife, we came across a group of Australians who had volunteered to come and help. And what were that what were the experts on dance therapy dance therapy in the middle of the jungle <laughs> it seemed to me a very uh, illuminating example of what an offer-based agenda is rather than a demand-based agenda is the third point is inclusiveness <clears throat> you want majority rule to rhyme with minority rights you would want the prevalence of the rule of law, the establishment of the rule of law, very early on in the, in the process. You would have enlarged franchise. You would want to have proportional representation. You would want to have power sharing mechanisms. So the, the common trait to the institutions would be that they were inclusive rather than functioning according to other principles. For instance, the winner takes it all. First-past-the-post electoral systems are not inclusive in, in, in this sense. Finally, there is a question of control. Democratic power is by nature limited in scope and time. But who is to control? Who is to exercise control? Democratic Control is achieved via vertical accountability, via horizontal accountability, and also very important, by eliminating all sectors of activity that exist in a de facto regime of impunity. You can have, namely when you have an international intervention with a good cause, you can have actors who operate outside any form of democratic control. And that is actually to be avoided. It would be very easy to accept the technocratic argument that stressed the lack of capacity of the Timorese to actually make the fundamental decisions which could remain in the hands of foreign advisors. And this question of the foreign advisors is critical. They need to be controlled. They had to be controlled. Otherwise, uh, ownership of the project of the program would completely be lost. So this is the idea. Yes, Timor-Leste could become a democracy, but the way had to be within certain boundaries. There were some principles that had to be obeyed. How did they do that? Let me consider first and briefly the two and a half year period which Jarrett Chopper called the UN Kingdom of East Timor, the time when the United Nations were administering directly the territory. 
there were two parallel goals. The administration of the territory before independence and to set foundations for the emerging new state. These were two processes that should be parallel and not interfere with each other. A major problem was the UN attitude. It has been called as benevolent despotism or other concepts like that, benevolent authoritarianism and so forth. The combination of legislative, executive and judicial power were put in the hands of one sole person. The, the special representative of the Secretary General, the Brazilian Sergio Vieira de Mello. He was called, he was uh, described as a pre-constitutional monarch in a sovereign state. So there would be at best a contradiction between the goals to set up democracy and the means democracy through authoritarian rule. This was uh, a fundamental issue in this process. The second big issue was that there was infighting between UN agencies with significant implications. For the best of two decades, the Timorese issue had been handled in New York by the Department of Political Affairs. The Department of Political Affairs knew everybody on the ground. He knew the Timorese, he knew the Indonesians, he knew third parties involved in the negotiations. But in September 1999, the file was transferred from DPA to the Department of Peacekeeping Operations. And the Department of Peacekeeping Operations didn't know much about Timor. It knew a lot about peacekeeping. It knew a lot about war-torn societies. And the main aspect of DPKO operations is that between two warring factions, you need a buffer. But in Timor, there were no two warring factions. The Indonesians had withdrawn. They had lost the referendum, 78.5% against 21.5%. They had withdrawn. There was no need for a buffer in between two war infections because one was no longer there. But this meant that the Timorese could get no better than consultancy. They were consultants in their own in their own country. They set up a national consultative council. Of course, the, the implications was that there were growing local pressure for an early exit of the United Nations. The Timorese did not want to be ruled by an autocrat while they were sitting and advising him. In parallel, there were international pressures also to cut the UN presence short. 
On one hand, financial pressures, it was expensive to be there. On the other hand, they demanded guarantees that there would be a democratic state, that there would be a democratic polity after the UN left. But anyway, international pressure was also very much felt to cut short the UN presence in Timor. In this context, the constitutional issue emerges. The constitution is a fundamental condition for independence. You need to have a set of rules to govern the, the way you go about things. How to draft it? There are several problems about drafting a constitution. One is the question of timing. Farid Zakaria has argued that you have the rule of law before suffrage. You would have paper power before people power. You should have a debate, consultation, and establishment of the basis for a constitution before you open political, political competition. It is not unreasonable to think along these lines. Because once you have political competition, <coughs> the drive towards consensus can be very strongly counterweighted by majority versus minority uh, attitudes. Timor-Leste, as we will see, has chosen to have elections before the, con the, the, the Constitution, and that was uh, influential. The second is the institutional model, how to do it. Garrison says that the degree of legitimacy and political support for a new constitution are critically affected by decisions about the time frame of the constitution building process, about who is to make key decisions and what the extent of political participation will be. And there are two options. One is the very classical option, elections for an assembly and rely on the mechanisms of representative democracy. This is classical, although in a study of constitutions in the 19th and 20th century, some scholars have come to the conclusion that this model was followed in only 12% of the cases. Although this fits very well into national notions of democracy. It is very neat. You have free and fair elections, you elect representatives, they will do the, the job. This fits very neatly into the international community on arguments. The second option would be what has been called new constitutionalism, to defer the election, organize a process of grassroots consultations, allow time for consensus and use mechanisms of participatory democracy. In Timor, the time allowed for this was very short and therefore strong pressure existed to go for the classical versus the new constitutionalism would have been a much much more protracted period. The choice was therefore to elect a constituent assembly, a recommendation that Shanana signed 
but in the wake of it, of which he actually resigned from the National Council, which he was chairing. There was a very short time, two months, for the registration of political parties. There was another critical issue, which was the absence of major stakeholders from the Assembly. For instance, Shanana Guzmán, the nationalist leader, or José Ramos Arta, the Nobel Prize winner, or representative from the Catholic Church, which is a very dominant social force in Timor. None of them was a member of the Constituents' Assembly. So the Constituents' Assembly had to operate without the presence of major political figures. It was dominated by one single party, and it disposed only of three months, which were then extended by another three months to write the constitution. Uh, the average time scale is one year. So this had to be done very quickly, time constraints. And remember, one of the things I said in the beginning was democracy could be achieved if adequate time frame was uh, offered. The, the end result was that there was a shallow agreement among the political elites. The majority of parties present in the, in, the, in the assembly voted no. There were 11 parties present in the, in, the, in the assembly. Three of them voted for, eight of them voted against. Obviously, they, didn't, they were not the most widely popular parties, but still. Uh, if you count the number of parties who voted against versus those who voted yes, the majority voted no. The role for consultations with the population was taken up really as a mockery of what had been proposed. They organized, they had a week to, as they said, socialize the basic elements of the constitution among the population. They had meetings in every district, in every sub-district. There were thousands of people who, who came, but you cannot discuss a full constitution in one afternoon with a thousand people. The end result was that only four suggestions coming from those meetings were taken by the Constituent Assembly in the end. So, the Constitution, which should be the embodiment of consensus, of political consensus, was a fragile document. Yet, it has remained in force, it has never been suspended, it has never been amended. It's a bit puzzling how it is that a document whose birth was so controversial has shown capacity to resist these now 12 years without any uh, change. Although we can say that uh, it bears responsibility for some of not so good things that happened in the, these years. One of the para-constitutional decisions, not a strictly constitutional, but para-constitutional decision, was not to hold elections for parliament, but 
to transform the Constitutional Assembly into the first parliament. This was actually opposed by a lot of parties inside the House and by a lot of, of political personalities outside the House. In, in, in brief, what this meant was that open political competition was delayed until the end of first parliament life. So it was delayed for five years. <clears throat> and uh, in this respect, I think that the constitution was responsible to a large degree for the 2006 crisis, which rocked uh, Dili in April and May 2006. But trying to conclude very briefly on four themes about the Constitution. Did, did it provide a durable document? Yes. Did it provide temperance, incentives for inclusive governance? Yes. Did it provide stability? I would say no mostly on paraconstitutional issues than on the constitution itself, but the way it was approved did not guarantee stability for the next few years. Did it articulate well with the notion of democracy? Yes. So, by and large, the constitutional process was a success in spite of the dire conditions under which it occurred. A second element, or third element, of my analysis, let me see how I'm going, is elections. Kofi Annan, the Secretary General of the United Nations, once said, while democracy must be more than three elections, it is also true that it cannot be less. It's a truism. Everybody agrees with I think that everybody agrees with it. And Timorese have had plenty of elections. The referendum in 1999, legislative or constitutional elections in 2001, 2007 and 2012, presidential elections in 2002, 2007, 2012, and local government in 2004 and 5, and then again in 2009. So plenty of, of elections in those years. On the whole, free and fair elections, they have been free and fair elections according to international observers. The local government elections, the first local government elections were probably the, the most controversial ones. Uh, there were some problems in 2007, but by and large elections are uh, have all been free and fair. And therefore, there is a basic ground for elections to be effective. But there are more conditions. We need to look at the elections a little bit more in detail, otherwise we can be uh, misreading the situation. Elections must not only be free and fair according to the international organizations, they must be free and fair according to the perception of the electors. Electors must realize and must understand and must act as if they were free and fair. And this means that there is a very important role for electoral legislation and electoral administration. 
All those things have been very positive in the case of Timor. A wide franchise, everybody aged 17 and, and above has been <coughs> put in the roles. There has been a very reliable electoral registration, although the updating offers some problems. The basis for this uh, electoral registration is very reliable. The electoral administration has adopted a dual model in which there is a government agency who operates the basic things, but there is also the so-called National Electoral Commission, which is an independent from government and has got representatives of all political parties running in on all candidates and also representatives from uh, civil society and which is highly regarded as a truly independent and biased in favor of government uh, and who has got a very uh, important role in the organization of elections. And this is important because, as Robert Pastor once remarked, the character, competence and composition of electoral management bodies can determine whether an election is a source of peaceful change or cause for serious instability. Timor-Leste has tackled this issue very positively and its expertise has been internationally acknowledged, so much so that in the recent past, Timorese people have been organizing the elections in Guinea-Bissau and at the auspices of the United Nations. It was Timor-Leste, the nation that was chosen to help and set up the electoral administration in Guinea-Bissau. This is a token of how successful this has been. A second element of democratic elections is that they have to be consequential. In the presidential elections, you had three elections, you elected three different presidents. So they were consequential. In legislative elections, you have one major shift in majority. Fretilin went from government to opposition. Other parties came from opposition to government. In 2012, the majority was significantly reshuffled four of the coalition partners could not find a seat in new parliament, a new majority was created, so elections were very consequential. And so, so far, they are compatible with the criteria put up by some academic scholars, uh, American scholars, which is ex ante uncertainty, everybody can have a fair chance of winning, Export irreversibility, that is, they have to be consequential, and repeatability. Elections must be repeated at regular intervals. So, in this instance, elections have been a positive factor in uh, solving the political issues. The third is the capacity to promote power sharing and limit the concentration of power. I will address this issue a bit later, but the fact that proportional representation has been adopted uh, has meant that uh, inclusiveness has been achieved. The only drawback is that they 
established a 3% threshold on legislative elections. Parties must have a 3% share of the vote to secure a seat in parliament. And so many people failed to, so many small parties failed, that if you add them all together, 20% of electors do not find a representative of their own in parliament. This is a very large number, but so far it has not been critical. I will show you later on why not. So how can we judge the impact of elections? Participation in elections has been above 90% in the first ones, above 80% in recent ones. So very high turnout, very high participation. People actually still believe that elections are a tool, a weapon in their hands. Elections have also been critical in reshaping the political system, the party system. In 2001, you had a dominant party in a multi-partisan system, but with a clearly dominant party, they polled about 60% of the vote. In 2007, you had fragmentation. You had 11 parties, eight parties, eight parties present in the, the, the assembly. In 2012, you have bipolarization. You have two major parties with two smaller ones. So the fact that the landscape of political parties has changed, it has changed by virtue of holding elections and of electoral results. And also another important thing is that, in my view, elections are a good mirror of the country. On one hand, you have regional patterns of voting. You know that people have uh, different sensibilities. Sometimes people are even divided into the Westerners and the Easterners, Lorosites and Loromunus, uh, which is, it was very important in 2006. Today is less so, but still you have clearly regional patterns of voting, which are articulated with other features of the country. And there, are, there is an influence of the oldest of traditional authority. There are people who come from traditional authority backgrounds who still poll very well in their places of origin. So uh, although they are a modern instrument, elections still reflect some traditional forms of political culture. And to conclude this chapter, elections have established themselves as a critical element through which the evolution of the political landscape has evolved. I have two more points. I hope I still have still, still time. <clears throat> One point is about the choice of government system. Timor Leste shows semi-presidentialism which is a popular system in the third wave of democratization and which is also very common in the Portuguese-speaking world since Portugal has adopted this system back in 1976. In Timor Leste, I think it was a case for the combination of historical and political elements. In comparative terms, 
if you compare uh, like my colleague Marina Costa Lobo has done uh, good, she has coordinated a study about semi-presidentialism in Portuguese-speaking countries. The presidency seems to be weak, to have few powers. However, in Timor-Leste, the president retains critical elements of power. It can dissolve parliament and it, it can dismiss the prime minister. Both of these powers are restricted, they are not unlimited, but they exist and can be operationalized. And this is very strong powers. They may not have many powers, but those he has are extremely important powers. He can also veto legislation, he is supreme commander of the armed forces, which means he has got a symbolic standing, which is very important and goes very well with traditional political culture. Although the presidency had to be created from zero, Shanana Guzmão, the historical leader of nationalism in Timor, told me that after he won the election in 2002, he went up to the special representative Sergio Vieira de Mel and said, here I am, I am the elected president, where am I going to work? And he said, we don't have an office for you. Uh, go and choose one. And then he set off touring the city and they came with three suggestions and said, oh, no, 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 this is gone for the Ministry of Health and that is for the Ministry of State Administration, that's for something else. And so he went again. They had no provisions to install the president in an office. But the presidency is not a big thing. It could be established anywhere, and Shanana ended up choosing the so-called Hashi's Palace, a house which has been burned. Uh, there was literally no roof. We could only work on the ground floor because on the top floor it would be sky open. Uh, and even then, when it rained a lot, and it does rain a lot in tropical Timor last, sometimes the water would come through the, the the ceiling. And my office was on ground floor and just next to the stairs. And sometimes the, the water coming down the stairs would come into, into our office. It was really uh, a very uh, awkward situation, but we were there working under those conditions for three or four years before the presidency actually moved to a new presidential palace built by the Chinese. But in institutional terms, you don't need just an office or a physical place. You need staff, you need a car. Shannon used his own car and then there was problems of paying him petrol because the government could not pay petrol on private person's cars. It was, you know, one of these bureaucratic nightmares the United Nations loves provoking. But it took time to institutionalize presidency. Let me give you an example. The president has got two advisory councils, the Council of State and Superior Council for Defense and Security. Uh, they, are, they don't have any power except to advise the president and the president should convene these organs when he sees fit, although one must be convened at least once every quarter.
but it took three years to pass legislation enabling the president to create the, these, these advisory. Three years, something which should have been done within three weeks. The president needed those uh, in order to exercise his, his, his <coughs> but it took a long time to institutionalize. But if you look at 2002, what was the picture? The government was strong. It was a legacy of the UN. It had a bureaucratic administration. It was, at least in relative terms, the government was strong. The courts were almost non-existent. The parliament was dominated by one party. And therefore, the situation was ripe for what Jacqueline Siapno and um, Sven Gunnar Simonsen said or called the authoritarian temptation. There would be, there could be an authoritarian temptation on the part of a, a political party which still regarded itself as the revolutionary front uh, with historical legitimacy to rule for 50 years. So, in where could we have checks and balances in here? Courts were non-existent, Parliament was unable to exercise control of government. It was the role of the President to exercise some checks and balances. Three different elections, three different presidents, but still one thing in common. All of them were independent. They were not affiliated to any political party. And in, in this sense, they brought to the institutions the idea that you can have national unity above party fraction, fractionalism. The fact that they were independent reduce the risk which is inherent to semi-presidentialism of confrontation between the president and the prime minister. And it also gave them freer hands in order to enlarge the field of political debate to other socially relevant forces. For instance, the president can choose five members for the Council of State. The Council of State has no executive powers, but is an advisor to the president. And when the presidents did choose these members, they looked, for instance, to the, those political parties who had remained outside parliament and still commanded 20% of the vote and chose one. Uh, he decided to choose people from close relations with the Catholic Church, uh, to choose women to, to, to have uh, gender representation and so forth. In, in this small scale, the president could speak. Uh, he could invite people from the opposition party to take part in the Council of State. So the, the president could and did, in fact, enlarge the, the scope of political participation. And therefore, uh, the president has been critical in guaranteeing inclusiveness in the system and therefore the central position in, of the presidency in the success of democracy building. 
And my conclusion is that the emergence of independent presidents above party competition in a context characterized by low levels of institutionalization of most constitutional organs of power contributed significantly both to foster an inclusive approach that transcended the parliamentary dichotomy government opposition and to add a new layer to the mechanisms of checks and balances. Now, the final point is about something mostly negative. Decentralization and local government. Decentralization is a constitutional mandate, yet for most practical purposes, it does not exist yet. The Timorese government has a roof, but no roots, as a local administrator put to me, has got a roof, but no roots. People at grassroots level don't see what the what democratic state is like. Decentralization in the Western world can mean three things. Deconcentration, delegation, and devolution. When you're talking about democracy, the relationship is clearly with devolution. The other two elements uh, relate to the efficiency of the administration, but only indirectly relate to the allocation of power. They started studying, conceiving what to do back in 2002, and by 2003, the local government option study was produced. <coughs> it offered six scenarios. And they, the options, the actual options was basically one, to maintain one level at grassroots, the sukus and aldeas, the villages, and two, to create a new intermediate level of administration. So far, they have organized elections for the very local level, but this local level means that they are not really regarded as a state organ. They do not have a state budget. They do not share the, 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 the budget. They do not have specific state functions. They are little less than representatives of the communities and capable of organizing community life according to traditional rule. For the new intermediate levels of administration, the state has made, several governments have made different proposals. The current government has decided to transform the 13 districts into 13 municipalities, but so far it's still being, the law is still being prepared, not yet passed. However, this whole problem of local government, and I'm cutting this very short, is that local government reveals very clearly how false is the assumption that all the new administration has to be built from ground zero. That is the basic UN approach. 
all the administration has got to be built from ground zero. No, it is not true. There is at least the notion of political legitimacy exists in communities. They have legitimate leaders. And this is very much, this is very um, felt in local government. So they have leaders, but the leaders are not given state functions, even if local state functions. <clears throat> and therefore, uh, this whole process has been a protracted process and so far has produced no significant result. And this would be very important in order for the majority of the population who lives outside daily the capital to feel that democracy is something which is pertinent to the organization of their daily lives and that the state has got to address issues of community life as well in a democratic fashion. I leave the three challenges for the questions and answers period and I thank you for your attention. Thank you.